Well, hello. It's good to see you all today. It is a joy to gather once again to, as a community, firmly plant our feet in the story of God's people. And we're going to be continuing looking at a portion of that story that's told in the book of First Kings. And we've been working through some of the historical books of the Bible over the past couple of months. And the David saga, by this point, has more or less come to an end, although David's impact, his influence in the larger story that is being told has not ended. But last week we saw that power has now transferred from King David to his son Solomon. And Solomon is now beginning his reign. And by 1 Kings chapter 3, which is where we're going to spend our time today, Solomon is firmly in his place of authority to do as he pleases, so to speak. This is the last sentence of 1 Kings chapter 2, which we went through last week. It says, so the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. Solomon is beginning to reign. And today we are going to be talking about perhaps the most notable, certainly one of the most commonly acknowledged features of Solomon's reign. And what might that be? It's not rhetorical. You can answer it. What is Solomon known for? What's that? Wives. That is not what we're going to be talking about. What's that? The temple? What else? We, we've wisdom. So you may have picked that up in some of the prayers that we've prayed in our scripture reading from Proverbs this morning. Solomon is known for wisdom, among other things. He's sort of like the Einstein of the, the biblical narrative, not in terms of field of study, but as a representation or a symbol of intelligence or or wisdom, and not the name Einstein used in a pejorative sense. All right, Einstein, you know what I'm talking about? As the youngest of four boys, I was well acquainted with the name Einstein used in a derogatory way. <laughs> Use your head, Einstein. Pull it together, Einstein. This is therapeutic for me, so thank you for humoring me for a moment. But Solomon is commonly known for his wisdom. And that's what we're going to be focusing our attention on today. He was, as we've heard, also known for a lot of other things, things like having 700 wives and 300 concubines, right? At the beginning of today's, the, the chapter we're reading today, 1 Kings chapter 3, we actually read this. It says, Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. So he's known for having a lot of wives, a lot of concubines. He was perhaps known for building temples to foreign gods so that his pagan wives would have a place to worship. He's known for creating a massive army and using heavy taxation and even using thousands of Hebrew slaves to help him complete some of the projects he endeavored to complete. But we are going to focus on his wisdom instead of focusing on the fact that he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. You know, we went down that path a little bit, dealt with some of these ideas when we looked at the life of David. So we are going to move on and talk about wisdom. That's much more comfortable, I think since we've already been down that road. So let's begin reading 
First Kings chapter 3, our text begins in verse 3, where we read this. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. Ask what I shall give you. Now, as we continue reading, we're going to see that Solomon clearly misses a perfect opportunity. Because what is the first rule if you ever find yourself in a situation like this? Infinite wishes. If you ever stumble upon that ever-elusive genie in the bottle, you ask for limitless wishes. Don't think, just ask. I will take infinite wishes. I, I mean, the Lord doesn't put any limitations on Solomon here. He just says, what do you want? There aren't any limitations like we find the, the genie placing on Aladdin. What were those? You can't ask for somebody to be killed, I think. What else? You can't, you can't make somebody fall in love with you and, and no bringing back the dead. Is that it? That there aren't any limitations here on Solomon, and he doesn't ask for more wishes. So I personally don't know how much we can trust Solomon here, but that's beside the point. So we continue reading, though, and in verse 6, we discover what the motivation is behind the request that he does make. So if you know the rest of the story, you know that he is going to ask for wisdom. Beginning in verse 6, we see what the motivation for that request is. And Solomon said... You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. I do not know how to go out or come in. I do not know what to do. The task that lies before me is far too complicated. I am not prepared for it. I need help in this. This actually reminds me of a prayer that we find on the lips of Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, where he is faced with what seems to be an impossible task as well, and his prayer is, look, we are powerless, God. We don't know what to do in this situation, but our eyes are on you. I think there's something important to be learned in Solomon's humble example here, and to be honest, the humility that we find at the beginning of this story doesn't necessarily last very long in the story, but his reign at least begins with an acknowledgement of his own limitations. This is a very honest and quite human response as he considers the task before him. And would that posture have lasted, maybe things would have worked out differently for the kingdom. Maybe the kingdom of Israel wouldn't have just ended up looking like every other empire or every other kingdom in the world. Perhaps faithfulness to Yahweh would have lasted with just a little bit of prolonged humility. And I think in this there is a warning or 
At least something for us to think about as we read through this story. Because this is setting the stage for the request that Solomon is going to make in a few moments. As we've just alluded to, he asks for wisdom. But I think this posture of humility that we find here at the beginning is the beginning of that pursuit of wisdom. Because without humility, I mean, wisdom, a request for wisdom would have been off the table. Wisdom wouldn't have been a request because the assumption would probably have been, well, I have all of the knowledge I need. I'm adequately prepared for this. I have the right education. I have the right experience. There's nothing that's going to throw me off this course or thwart my plans. I've I've thought everything through, so bring it on. I'm ready for what lies ahead. Now, we don't have to live very long in the real world to discover how unrealistic a perspective or an attitude like that really is. I think often if we are honest with ourselves and honest with others, our confession is probably in line with Jehoshaphat's prayer from Second Chronicles, but also this confession that Solomon makes here in First Kings chapter 3. God, I don't know what to do. This is overwhelming. The the situation I face is baffling me. I I don't know which way to go. I don't know how to go out or come in. I need your help. I don't even know where to begin. And I think as we consider this, we discover a simple truth that wisdom, from a Christian perspective at least, is not necessarily comprehensive knowledge about a given subject. At least it doesn't begin there. It's not necessarily an exhaustive understanding of the situation that we find ourselves in. It's not facts or a clear picture of where we are going. And so I think we find this encouragement right here from the beginning of this story. If you feel lost, if you feel unprepared, if you feel like you don't know how to go out or come in, if you feel inadequate or feeble or unimpressive, hear this. God is not disappointed in you. God is not disappointed in you. God is not dismissive of you, but he will use you in your weakness to build his kingdom. And maybe not, for most of us, probably not in a world-changing way. But God will use you to build and advance his kingdom. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul goes into beautiful detail to describe the way in which the cross of Jesus Christ is folly. And he makes the argument that we do not meet or we do not know God through our own human understanding or through our own wisdom. But we meet and we know God through something that seems foolish to those who are on the outside looking in. We meet and we know God through the cross of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to make this statement, verse 26. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things 
that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is where it begins. Wisdom is birthed in humility before God. Now let's consider what that wisdom looks like as it continues to be developed throughout our lives. Jumping back to 1 Kings chapter 3, where we left off in verse 8. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people? So again, we find that posture of humility, but maybe we could consider the question, what does it mean to be wise? I think this is a question that we will probably all ask over the course of our lives, because by and large, most of us probably hope that wisdom is a defining characteristic of our lives. And maybe we wouldn't phrase it in exactly the way that Solomon has here, but wisdom is a desirable quality. But before we can begin to pursue a wise life as followers of Jesus, I think we need to consider what that means, what it looks like. What is wisdom? And as followers of Jesus, does wisdom look different for us than it might for the world at large? And I I think the answer to that question has to be yes, from a Christian perspective. And I think there are at least a couple of misguided approaches to wisdom that are pervasive in our culture. I think on one hand, wisdom is often thought to be just absolute certitude about everything. So if I know what I believe about this issue and I don't waver on it, then I am wise because I have the answer. At the opposite extreme, a lot of other times wisdom is equated with doubt. Well, I am wise because I don't believe in all of these silly superstitions. You know, Dallas Willard has said that we live in a culture that has cultivated the idea that the skeptical person is always smarter than the one who believes. He goes on to say, you can almost be as stupid as a cabbage. I don't know how stupid that is, but you can almost be as stupid as a cabbage so long as you doubt. I think we live in a day and age where Wisdom is often simply equated with doubt about anything that is not provable in a scientific sense. And sometimes maybe even it's wise to doubt in the presence of scientific evidence. And if it isn't just doubt that makes one wise, then it's probably ideological conformity. Because if I buy into this particular ideology wholesale, then that particular group of people will know that I am intelligent, they will know that I am wise because I don't believe everything that that other group believes. Now let me be clear that I am in no way denigrating those who have doubts at all. As Oswald Chambers said, doubt is not always a sign that a man or a person is wrong. It may be a sign that they are thinking. If you If you wrestle with doubt, I would say this to you this morning. Welcome to the club. 
It's not an actual club, by the way. That's just a figure of speech. But if you wrestle with doubt, welcome to the club. Faith in Christ does not eliminate that doubt all the time. I wish it did, but it doesn't. Sometimes there will be seasons of doubt, seasons of questioning, and they may last a long, long time. And I think we need to be gracious with ourselves when we find that we are in a place where we are troubled by doubt, but we also need to be sensitive to others who find themselves in those seasons because we too understand what it's like to not know which way is up and to not really be able to find our way. And yet, at the same time, I don't think doubt in and of itself is somehow an intrinsically enlightened perspective. So as long as you doubt, you reveal that you're not gullible. You reveal that you're not superstitious. You reveal that you are one of the wise ones because you're not going about this life with all of these assumptions that are absolutely unprovable. But I simply don't think that is an achievable position to be in, to go through life with assumptions that are not unprovable. Because we all have assumptions, and those assumptions impact how we live life. And for all of us, some, if not many, of those assumptions aren't verifiable in a scientific sense, whether those assumptions are explicitly religious or not. So this is what I really want to try to communicate, is that we can be certain about a lot in this life and still not be faithful to Christ. Conversely, we can have great doubts. We can be troubled by doubt a lot and not necessarily be unfaithful, but we can also doubt a lot and still not be faithful to Christ. Because for Christians, wisdom cannot be reduced to either certainty on one hand, where we have all of the answers to every question asked. At the same time, wisdom cannot be reduced to mere doubt, where we refuse to believe anything that we can't explain or understand. Certitude and doubt, those are not terms that we use to describe or understand or measure wisdom as followers of Jesus. So how might we understand wisdom? Let's go back to 1 Kings chapter 3 and see what Solomon, see how Solomon describes the wisdom that he seeks in verse 9. He says, give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. It says, give me an understanding mind that I may discern between good and evil. And I think this is at least a good starting place for us. Wisdom is discernment. We find similar language that is used in other parts of our Bible to describe wisdom. In Proverbs chapter 15, verse 21, we read this. Folly is a joy to him who lacks sense, but a man of understanding walks straight ahead. So maybe wisdom, from a Christian perspective, has less to do with being smart. Maybe it has less to do with an aptitude for something like rote memorization. Well, they must be wise. I mean, they've mastered all of these various subjects. They can recall all of this useless information in an instant. 
I guess maybe it's not useless. It comes in handy if you're participating in a trivia night or something, but that's about it. They can recall all of this information so they are wise. But I think as Christians, the wisdom that we are interested in is not this ability to curate a storehouse of facts about dates and people and places and events or scientific principles or even math equations. Although, obviously, that type of learning has a lot of merit. But when we think of wisdom, the wisdom that we are interested in as followers of Jesus has much more to do with this idea of discernment, where we develop the ability to judge between good and evil, and then we have the courage to chase after and pursue the good. Let's continue reading in verse 10. Solomon has made his request, and we read this, it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that now like you has been before, hold on, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. So in verse 10, we read that the request Solomon has made for wisdom, the request he has made for the ability to discern what is right and wrong from that place of humility, beginning in that place of uncertainty and maybe even feelings of inadequacy, we read that Solomon's request pleased the Lord. Now, why did it please the Lord? We aren't told explicitly, but... I think at least in part, this request pleased the Lord because it revealed that Solomon, at least in the beginning, Solomon desired healthy, just, and righteous relationships over things. For Solomon, healthy community was more desirable than riches, it was more desirable than long life or the expulsion of his enemies, and I believe that is a disposition that pleases the Lord. Or maybe we could understand the things that Solomon values here through this lens of the interior life versus the exterior life. He, at least verbally in the beginning of his reign, acknowledges that there are things that may not be quantifiable. Maybe you can't measure the benefits of these things, but they are far more valuable than many other things that can be measured. Things that can be counted and even accumulated. There's something more important to be developed in the interior life. In the novel that is Psalm 119, again, it's not actually a novel, it's a figure of speech. The, the psalmist makes this request in verse 66. He says, teach me judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. And then if you jump down to verse 72, he says, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Why? Because it cultivates the soul. 
It enables a person to deal equitably, justly, and righteously, not only with other people, but also have that just perspective when it comes to the things we possess. And look, we we can't divorce our interior life from the exterior life. They are intricately connected and I think always will be. Our interior life is related to, it affects, and is affected by the exterior life. We're going to talk about these issues in more detail next week, but I think for us, beginning with the interior life, nurturing the interior life then makes the exterior or makes the whole person healthy. So Solomon requests the ability to discern what is right and wrong. He asks for wisdom that he might lead in a way that brings health to relationships, that brings health to people he is leading, and that request pleases the Lord. So this is the question I want to pose to you. It's not a question that we are left with in the text, but I think it's an appropriate question to ask, and that is, what about you? What about me? And not in the sense where we believe that we are going to stumble upon that genie in the bottle, or we can have whatever we want, or Maybe even more, unfortunately, where we view God through that lens, where we look at God and think he is a genie that is just going to give us whatever we want if only we ask with the right disposition of heart. And yet I think asking this question that Solomon is faced with, that Solomon is left with from the Lord, I think asking that question and taking inventory of our hearts in light of that question reveals what direction our lives are going to head in. So this is what Solomon asks, what about you? What about me? What would we ask for? If unlimited wishes is off the table, of course, as an option, what what is it that we truly desire? Is it more money? Is it related to our sexuality or finding romantic love? Or is it that our enemies would be punished appropriately? Or is it the health of our souls? Is it the health of our relationships? What is it that we truly desire? And we're just going to leave that question kind of open-ended this morning. We're going to continue thinking about that question next week as we turn our attention to the Gospel of Mark chapter 7 and continue this discussion. But what is it that you truly desire? You know, at the end of Hebrews 5, the author, whoever that might be, provides this strong warning against the abandonment of faith, against the abandonment of faithfulness. In verse 11, we read this. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Again, we find that language, the connection between wisdom and discernment and then the courage to chase after the good. And perhaps what what the author of Hebrews is describing here is the result of neglecting proper soul care. And is it possible that neglecting proper soul care comes from 
maybe an inadequate or misguided answers to that question of what it is we truly desire. What do you desire? I would encourage you over the next week to be thinking about that. We're going to pick this idea up next week and explore it in more detail. But this morning, as we turn our attention to the table of the Lord, Olivia and Audra want to come up. We are responding to the invitation of Jesus Christ to this feast at this table. Jesus, the bread of life, that's how he describes himself in that text we read last week. Jesus, the bread of the world, offers himself to us. And so in just a few moments, we are going to make a couple of lines down this center aisle, and we will invite you to come forward. We will offer you the bread, say the body of Christ broken for you. We will offer you the cup, say the blood of Christ shed for you. And I believe that in this meal, the real presence of Jesus is meeting with us and drawing us into deeper life. I believe that Jesus, as we reflect upon the text that we have read from 1 Kings chapter 3, is reminding us to pursue the things that are important in this life, to seek true wisdom. Not wisdom as it is defined culturally, but to seek true wisdom or discernment. Jesus is calling us again to model our lives after his life and after his teaching. Would you stand this morning? As we come to the table this morning, I want to read the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. Paul says this, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Lord Jesus, we respond to your invitation this morning. We willingly put ourselves in a position to be brought into your life, a position of humility, an acknowledgement of our own weakness, our own limitations. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would help us develop to develop the ability to discern between good and evil and then the courage to chase after the good. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Would you join us at the table this morning?